Hebrews chapter 9, starting verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made of human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died, as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first time. The pastor of Rome now is going to continue in week three of our Hebrews series. Thanks, Jack. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Glad you could join us today. What's your favourite app on your phone? Think about it for a moment. Contacts. You didn't have to think about it at all. No, Radman just says, Contacts? That's your favourite app. You're just a friendly, lovely guy, aren't you, Redmond? There you go. What's your favourite app on your phone? Some other suggestions. Yeah, back corner. Yeah. The Bible app. So you don't get extra credit for giving you know, Christian answers. Favourite app on your phone? Come on. Optus Sport. What? Canvas. I suspect that's not truthful. Um, any, other, any other nominations? Candy Crush. Candy Crush. Uh, here's a thought for you. Here's a thought for you. Every, I don't know how many apps you've got on your phone. My guess is a lot. And every time you install an app, they ask you to click the terms and conditions, right? Yes, I've, I've read the terms and conditions. I accept it. And you just... How many different sets of terms and conditions do you reckon you've agreed to so far in life? Thousands? Possibly, isn't it? Does that ever trouble you a little bit? Yeah, it does. Because um, if I asked you how many contracts have you signed in your life, you, you'd probably number them on one hand. You know, maybe you signed an employment contract or two, or maybe you signed a scholarship contract, or maybe... But actually, every time you click I accept, that's another contract that you've agreed to. And the thing about contracts is that they end up dominating our life. They shape our life. So much of your life is actually shaped by these sort of contracts that you agree to. Now, contracts have terms and conditions, which probably would be a good idea if we actually read them and knew what we were signing up to, but often we don't. But there's terms and conditions. And then there's the actual product, the actual thing that you get, the blessing that you get by accepting these terms and conditions, right? They're the two different things. The reason I'm talking about terms and conditions and contracts is because today we're going to talk about a particular concept in the Bible that's really, really important. A really important concept in the Bible. It goes, it, it goes right through the Bible from beginning to end. So important is this particular concept that it is at the very heart of how the one true living God relates to us. That's why it's right throughout the Bible. It, uh, it wraps up actually our, the entirety of our life. 
this particular concept. It's a, co a co type of contract. Now, the Bible doesn't use the word contract. The Bible uses the word covenant. And today what we're going to be doing is exploring this idea of covenant because in the section of the book of Hebrews that we're in at the moment this week, we're sort of in the zone of chapter 8 to chapter 10, the writer to the Hebrews uses this word covenant a lot. Like in any other section of the Bible, the, the highest frequency for the word covenant are in these couple of chapters, chapter 8 to chapter 10. Now, the word covenant does occur right throughout the Bible. As I say, it's a theme that goes right throughout the Bible. It's just a particular word for a binding contract. Binding contract established between two parties. The contract, the covenant that's established in the Bible is the one between the one true living God and us, his creatures. Now, we don't think much about the word covenant because it's not used all the time in the Bible. But where it is used, it's really significant. It comes at key moments. You know, every time after it rains, not that it rains very much in Sydney anymore, but when it does rain and then the rainbow comes out, I don't know what, when you look at the rainbow, what you, what you think. You probably just go, should I take that photo for Instagram or not? Like that's sort of the level of our depth of our thinking when we see a rainbow these days. That's, that's not what you're meant to think when you see a rainbow. What are you meant to think when you see a rainbow, if you know the Christian Bible? Well, the rainbow is, we're told in the book of Genesis, a sign of a covenant, a contract that the one true living God established with all of his creatures. The covenant that he established after the flood with Noah, when he'd saved Noah and his family, they'd come out, saved through the flood, out comes the rainbow, and the Lord says, this is the sign of the contract, the covenant that I established with all my creatures, that no matter how sinful my creatures get, I will not destroy them all again in a flood. Every time you see a rainbow, it's meant to remind you of this divine covenant, this contract established. That's just one example there from the Bible. But you could trace it all the way through. Do you know that the night before Jesus died, he was having a meal with his closest friends, his disciples, in the upper room, what's called the Last Supper, because it was his last meal with his disciples. Do you know that Jesus, to help them understand what was about to happen when he dies, to help them understand his death, he used again this key word, covenant, to help them understand what was going on. This word is a really significant theme right throughout the Bible. It governs how the one true living God relates to us, his creatures. And these particular chapters, chapter 8 to chapter 10 of Hebrews, major on this theme. Helps you understand this whole theme of covenant. So that's what we're going to be doing today. So you can start to get your Bible out and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. That would be helpful. But I'm going to explain to you, first of all, I'm going to try and draw a diagram, the covenant that the contract that the one true living God established with his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. You might know the story. The Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, were oppressed as slaves in the nation of Egypt. They were a slave class in the nation of Egypt. The one true living God in his mercy and grace decided to rescue the descendants of Abraham, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And he brought them to meet himself at Mount Sinai. Here is a picture of Mount Sinai. Very accurate, as you can see. You recognize that anywhere. Here's Mount Sinai. And here's all of God's people 
at the bottom of the mountain. They gathered together at the bottom of the mountain. And what happened as the Israelites gathered at the bottom of the mountain was that the one true living God came down in a cloud, a dark cloud full of lightning, thunder. The one true living God manifested himself in this dark cloud on top of the mountain with the, with the people gathered at the bottom. And they heard him speak. Now, the one true living God is not made of stuff, not made of cells or atoms, or, so he doesn't have a vocal cord or vocal cords or a voice box, or, but he manifested his voice. He manifested words. He spoke and they heard and they were so terrified. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 19 through to chapter 22. They were so terrified by this experience that they begged Moses, their leader, to go up the mountain... Here's Moses going up the mountain and mediate the experience to be, they said, Moses, you listen to what the one true living God has to say and then you come back and tell us because if we listen to him anymore, we will die. Like it's just, it's just so terrifying was the experience. So the one true living God comes down in the midst of his people through the mediation of Moses and he, and he, he delivers to them his promises. He says, I want, I want to be your God, you be my people, and I will deliver salvation to you. I'll bring you to the promised land and give all these blessings to you. And he said, here is my law to keep. You might know the, the law, you heard of the Ten Commandments, written on tablets. Here's Moses with the Ten Commandments, which form the basis of the law. There were many other laws that filled out those Ten Commandments that they were to keep. This was the first covenant that was set up. But the, remember, at the moment, they've just escaped Egypt. They're in the desert at the bottom of Mount Sinai. This is not the promised land. The one true living God says, I want to take you to the promised land, to the land of Canaan. Where you, that's where I will bless you. So they're to go to the promised land, but the point is that the one true living God might live amongst them. He would be their God. They would be his people. He's going to, but how are we going to do that? So he says, he has a plan. He says, I want you to set up a mobile Mount Sinai. Well, he doesn't call it that, but that's what he's asking. He says, I want you to build this tabernacle, a tent, and I will be in the midst of my people because I will symbolically be in the middle of, of you by being there in the tent, and the tent will be in the middle. So he gave them this instructions about building a tent. So let me draw the tabernacle for you. Something like this. There was an inner sanctuary and then around that there was a wider courtyard and it was all um, you know poles and cloth so that they could it was mobile because they're traveling through the desert here's the entrance way and inside the courtyard there was like a big bowl for washing and there was a altar where they offered sacrifices and there were priests who did their priestly thing there in the courtyard and there was a high priest who was like the chief priest and once a year as we heard last week once a year the high priest would go into the very presence of the Lord in the most holy place and around the outside of the tabernacle that's where all the Israelites camped so literally he was there in the midst of his people the one true living God 
It's like a mobile version of Mount Sinai. So he can go with them and lead them. This is the old covenant that was set up. Notice a couple of things. How can God live in the midst of his people? Through this tabernacle system. Why is it so complicated? Why is all these details? Well, it's because, as I've been saying in the last couple of weeks, the reality is, that we know from the Bible, is that the one true living God is more holy than we can imagine. He's more holy than we can imagine and we are more sinful than we like to remember. So the way he could come and live in the midst of his people is by setting up this mediated system which had three main components. It had a tabernacle, a place. It had some people, the priests, who would do their action in the tabernacle and it had the sacrifices that the priests would offer. Priests offering sacrifices in the tabernacle. These are the key, three key features that enabled God to dwell in the midst of his people. Okay, this is the old covenant, what the Bible calls the old covenant, the setup that God's people enjoyed. This was a good system. It was a good system, but it didn't work. It didn't work. And we'll come back to why in a moment. Now, I'm going to stop a couple of times today to ask for questions because I'm going to power out a lot of stuff. So, got any questions you want to ask so far about what I've tried to explain? Or is it all crystal clear? Any questions? Any thoughts? Okay, great. Open your Bible to the book of Hebrews. You're now ready to understand what the writer says here. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. Jump in at verse 7. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. The writer is about to explain to us what's wrong or what was ineffective about this old system, good as it was. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. He says, For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. A couple of things that he says here. I'm going to draw another diagram over here. One, if you were with us at annual conference, you might have seen this before. The whole Bible story is a story of how the one true living God is taking his original creation, that's the creation that you and I live in, uh, where we're part of, which has been corrupted by human sin, our rejection of God's word and his way, he's taking this through to his promised new creation, where there will be no more sin and no more impact, negative impact of sin. We know from the Christian Bible that Jesus Christ stands at the centre of this plan, so we can represent Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection here in the middle. But how does the one true living God take this present creation corrupted by sin through the work of Jesus to the new creation? He does it by a series of covenants. In particular, there was the covenant, this old covenant here, which was established at Mount Sinai with Moses and the people. 
This Old Testament covenant, the writer has said, had some problems. Notice there what he said in verse 7. If there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. And then he goes on in verse 8, and he has a long quotation from verse 8 to verse 12 from the Old Testament. He quotes from Jeremiah 31, where there's a promise of a new covenant. And in fact, if you look through the Old Testament, I would put this in as a dotted line, there's numerous places where there is a promised new covenant. You can find it in Jeremiah 31, you can find it in Ezekiel 36, you can find it in Ezekiel 11, numerous other places. This promise of a new covenant. And the writer is saying, if there was nothing wrong with the first covenant, why would God have promised a new one? Clearly there was something wrong with the first one, except that he doesn't say there was something wrong with the first covenant. Notice what he says in verse 8, but God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming when there'll be a new covenant. Or jump down to verse 9. It's not going to be like the first covenant because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them. The problem with the first covenant wasn't this setup. The problem with this first covenant was with the people. In particular, it was with their hearts. Because they chose not to keep the terms and conditions. By going against the terms and conditions that the one true living God had set up in his law, they broke the covenant, they broke the contract, and therefore didn't enjoy all the benefits, the blessings that's meant to come as a result of this contract, of this covenant. The problem was with the hearts of the people. They didn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. They didn't love their neighbours themselves. They rejected God's word and his way. And so the first covenant failed. It was ineffective because of their hard hearts. So what do you notice about this new covenant? What's going to happen in this new covenant? Have a look there at what the writer has in chapter 8 as he quotes Jeremiah 31. Notice verse 10. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. A couple of things notice there about this new covenant that he's promising. God's going to write his law into their hearts and minds. Whereas the problem with the first one was that the people wouldn't obey God. When this new covenant comes, they will obey. They will want to follow God. He'll put his law in their hearts and their minds. They'll, they will actually be his people. They'll live it out. He will actually be their God, not just in name, but in the way they treat him, in the way they worship him. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He's going to forgive all of their sins. Remember their sins no more. It's like sin will be completely done away with, won't even be an issue anymore. Now, I started by talking about apps and terms and conditions and stuff like that. You know how um, with your apps, uh, you might be good at this. For some reason, I, I feel nervous about putting automatic updates on, on my phone. I don't know why. I, it's a bit silly. I probably should just trust. I should just trust, trust all tech companies, shouldn't I? I probably won't do that. So I have to update things manually. And so sometimes you're looking at it and you update it. And sometimes it just says, you know, it tells you about the update, it just says bug fixes. Cool, great. Some little 
fixing some bug that I never knew existed and probably never bothered me anyway. Or sometimes they might do a bit of a refresh, you know, just sort of add a new, a new little thing. Or, but then sometimes with an app, they do a full sort of rebuild. And it just, it's still doing the, like heading in the same direction. It's still sort of achieving the same purpose. You know, they don't turn Candy Crush into, I don't know, something else. But, you know, that, it's, still, it's still what it is, but they've completely redone it in a completely new, different sort of way. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not little bug fixes. It's not just a bit of a refresh. It's a complete rewrite. It's going to so completely change the game. It's still doing the same thing. It's the covenant that establishes the relationship between the one true living God and us, but it's done completely differently. It's got some continuities. Yes, God will still be their God. They will still be his people. It even still involves priests and tabernacles and sacrifices, but it's completely rebuilt. Have a look. We're going to look at that now. If you um, turn to chapter 9, notice what it says in chapter 9, verse 15. It says, For this reason, Jesus Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. So Jesus is the one who establishes this new covenant. What had been promised for hundreds of years, it comes in with the Lord Jesus. He's the mediator. The one like Moses, the one like the priests in the tabernacle. He's the one who mediates this new covenant. And you'll see these three things of priest, sacrifice and tabernacle reoccur. First of all, let's look for the priest bit. Have a look at chapter 7, verses 21-22. Jesus became a priest, he says, with an oath when God said to him, quoting from Psalm 110, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Jesus is the one who's the high priest in this new covenant and he lives forever. He's been resurrected to eternal glory. He lives forever, therefore he's the priest forever. Therefore he guarantees this new covenant forever. He's the priest. But he's also the one who offers the sacrifice. Have a look at chapter 10, verse 5. Chapter 10, verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said... And then he quotes from Psalm 40. So this is a bit odd, right? Psalm 40 written there in the Old Testament. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying, these are Jesus' words. But they're from the Old Testament, Psalm 40. Well, that's because Psalm 40 was a psalm of King David. And David, uh, in, in writing this psalm, the writer to the Hebrews is saying it was prophecy. It's really a, a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about the Messiah. This is what the Messiah will say. And so Jesus, he now says, so when Jesus comes, he appropriates this psalm, and this is true of Jesus. Then he quotes the psalm, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. The writer then gives you a little bit of his reflections on these verses. He says, first he says, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here am I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, 
we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What he's saying is when Jesus came as the one bringing in the mediator of the new covenant, he said, using Psalm 40, you don't desire these sacrifices, these animal sacrifices, but instead you've prepared a body for me. So I'm not going to offer these, these, these burnt offerings, but I'll say, here am I. I've come to do your will. It's Jesus' own body that replaces these sacrifices. It's his own death on the cross that is the sacrifice of the new covenant. And you can see this because I said before, the night before Jesus dies, he's there with his disciples. He knows he's about to die. He's trying to help them understand what his death means. Do you remember the moment, Luke records it in his account, where he has the cup and he passes around the cup after the meal and says, this cup is my blood, symbolically, in the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Jesus says, my death is what is bringing in the new covenant. The new covenant, the promised new covenant for hundreds of years, it's coming in in my death. The new covenant arrives. Now, if you were a Jewish person, you knew your Old Testament. You knew Jeremiah 31. You knew Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel. You knew these promises of the new covenant. And these were, these were profound, exciting promises that one day God would establish his new covenant. You've been waiting as a people hundreds of years. Hundreds of years waiting for this new covenant. And there's Jesus sitting with his disciples night before his and he says, my death tomorrow, that's the new covenant. That's a drop the mic moment, right? That's a incredible, okay, all of God's promises in the Old Testament, all of those, they're about to start now. That is the significance of Jesus' death, that he's bringing in the promised new binding contract, the new state of affairs between the one true living God and humankind established by Jesus the high priest through his death so we've talked about priest and sacrifice where where does Jesus offer this well we know he dies on the cross but look at what the writer says here turn with me this time to chapter 9 chapter 9 verses 11 and 12 actually I'll start with chapter 8 sorry chapter 8 verse 1 and 2 he says, the point of what we're saying is this, we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by human beings. So Jesus serves in the true tabernacle that's set up by God himself. Okay, let's keep going. Verse five and six then. Talking about the old priests, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. This is fascinating what they say here. Where is this tabernacle not made by human beings but made by the Lord? It's, it's what's in heaven. And what the writer actually says is, when Moses went up the mountain 
and was, was instructed by God, build this tabernacle, build this mobile Mount Sinai so I can go with you, what he actually saw, he was shown the reality that is in heaven. And he was instructed to build a copy of what he saw. He was to build like a model of what he saw. And that was the tabernacle. The reality, the tabernacle was never the reality. The reality was the very presence of God in heaven. And he was building a copy of that under divine instruction. And then what the writer says is, and so when you get to the reality of the real priest offering the real sacrifice, namely Jesus himself, where does Jesus offer that sacrifice? He offers us that sacrifice in the real tabernacle. He dies on the cross and stands then raised in glory in the very presence of God, the real most holy place. He stands in the very presence of God on the basis of his own sacrifice. The writer talks about this a number of times. I'll just point them out to you. Have a look at chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Or you can see it in chapter 9, verses 23 and following. He says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, there was only a copy of the true one, he entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Here's a, here's a little thought for you, a little question for you. Verse 23 there, chapter 9, verse 23. Let's read that again. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. He's saying it was necessary for these things, the earthly tabernacle, to be purified by these sacrifices. Okay, that sort of makes sense. Why? Because God's more holy than we can imagine. We're more sinful than we remember. Here's the tabernacle in the midst of a sinful people. It needs to be purified by those sacrifices. But then what he said was, but the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices. The heavenly things had to be purified with a better sacrifice. Why would you need to purify the heavenly things? Non-rhetorical question. Why would you need to purify the heavenly things? Is there anything in heaven that's not pure? Not already sanctified? Now, I'm not sure of the answer. But I thought of one thing. I thought of one thing that in the presence of God in heaven needs purification. It's us. If we're going to enter into the very presence of God, doesn't it need to be purified for our sakes? And I think that's probably what the, what the meaning of that is. Probably. Anyway. Okay, so we've talked about how Jesus is the priest 
offering the greater sacrifice in the true tabernacle in the heavenly places. What then is the outcome for us? And I'll finish with this. Well, chapter 9, verse 15, I think is the answer. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Notice here what he says. Christ is the mediator of this new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promised eternal inheritance. Why did Jesus come? Why is the new covenant established? So that you can receive an eternal inheritance. And maybe you've got a good earthly inheritance coming your way. Don't know your story. It's nice for you if you do. Be generous with it if you do. <laughs> but whether you come from fairly fairly poor means or very exalted means, you have an eternal inheritance that the one true living God wants to give you. And Jesus came as the mediator of the new covenant, offering himself as the ransom, the sacrifice, so you can receive it. What is that eternal inheritance? Well, I think it's the very things that Jeremiah 31 was talking about in chapter 8. Jeremiah 31 is talking about the things that God wants to give his people. What was it? Things like that he's going to put by his spirit his law into our hearts and minds. He wants to work in you, transform you, so that you have a heart for him. That's what he's doing by his spirit. He wants to work that in you and bring that to completion in all eternity. So that you love him fully. So that you worship him completely. That's what he's doing in you by his spirit. That's part of the new covenant promise. He wants to wipe away all of your sins so that there won't even be remembrance of it anymore. I know how our sins play on upon our minds at times. I've been talking about that over the last couple of weeks. How great will be the day when it won't even be remembered. This is part of the eternal inheritance that he wants to give you. This is the app upgrade, the new covenant that this will be your eternal inheritance and the terms and conditions have now been completely satisfied by Jesus himself. He is the one who came as the high priest offering the sacrifice in the true tabernacle so that you and I can get all the benefits of this new covenant for free without cost. So take hold of Jesus by faith. That's the accept, I accept the terms and conditions, right? That's the I entrust myself to Jesus. That's that moment of faith, becoming a Christian. Grab hold of Jesus, stay with him so you can receive these blessings of the new covenant for all eternity. Thanks, Ron. Um, we're about to finish. Before I pray, I just want to let you know what's happening over the next two weeks. So in weeks four and five, we're going to take a short break from our series of Hebrews and we're starting our God Give Us series, which is a two-week evangelistic series. Um, and there'll be different talks on every PM. So Monday and Thursday, different talks. You can go to as many PMs as you want. And this is a great opportunity to invite um, your non-Christian friends along to one of these hard meetings as well. So I'd really encourage you to um, think about who you can be inviting. Um, invite them and also be praying for them as well over the next coming weeks. We're really kind of encouraging us to come on to you. It'll be really exciting. Different talks every day for the next two weeks. Um, the God with us is. Um, but as I finish up, if you want to pray with me. Lord, you are more holy than we can ever imagine. And we are more sinful than we care to remember. There is a problem with our hearts, and so we need a new covenant. 
Lord, in your new covenant, you have put your laws in our minds, written them on our hearts. You have forgiven our wickedness and remember our sins no more. The death and resurrection of your Son is your new covenant to us. Christ is our mediator, and through him we can receive the promised eternal inheritance. Thank you. Amen. Amen.